Well, hello there, listeners. It's Susie New here, President of the Australian Society of Anaesthetists, and welcome to our podcast. It's called Australian Anaesthesia, and it's where we talk all things relevant to anaesthesia in Australia. There's been a lot of talk in the media about how COVID is overwhelming the health service, particularly in New South Wales and potentially on its way here in Victoria. So I thought it was time to go back and revisit COVID. In this episode, I'm chatting with Ryan Salter, who is an anaesthetist and intensive care doctor from New Zealand, who's just returned from working in the United Kingdom. He was working in a very specialised centre there, which dealt with ECMO, which stands for Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation. It's basically very, very fancy and intense life support and a hugely subspecialty area. So not all intensive care units will be able to do ECMO. ECMO is there to replace the function of your lungs and can also replace the function of your heart and heart and lungs together. It's so subspecialized that in Australia, one ECMO patient would usually have two intensive care nurses looking after them. The last thing I want to add is that we also have a very small giveaway for people in Australia. If you're interested in getting some scrubs, then stay tuned and I'll let you know more at the end of the episode. So let's get full bottle on ECMO and the impact of COVID on health systems. So you're originally from Wellington. Yeah, that's right. And how long have you been back now? So we got back just over a month ago. And so you're now a fully fledged consultant? Yeah, that's right. So my training path has been in both anaesthesia and in intensive care, my last bits of ICU training in Melbourne. Um, and then we set off from Melbourne in July last year to fulfill my fellowship post at Papworth Hospital in the UK. So that's oh, about a year there that you spent, is that right? Yeah, that's right. And so when I arrived, they were at the tail end of their first wave. They still had several patients who had been on respiratory ECMO all of them at that point had been on for more than 100 days. Wow. Um, and I think, unfortunately, all of those final patients did eventually die. Oh, gosh, that's difficult. Gosh, let me go back in time and go through that a bit more chronologically. But before I do, tell me about Papworth. Where is it? So Papworth is in Cambridge in England. It's basically a cardiothoracic referral centre for the east of England. So it's a reasonably busy ECMO centre, as well as being a very busy cardiac surgical centre. As a centre, Papworth runs six operating theatres, one thoracic theatre and five cardiac theatres. And then they have six cath labs that do the whole spectrum of cardiac catheterisation procedures, pacing procedures, ablations, etc. The ratio of cardiac to general theatres there is really high. And so the way that the hospital is set up, it's a bit quirky. There's no emergency department. So everybody who arrives there has been referred from another centre. Wow. So a very subspecialised cardiac centre. Yeah. Do you know in a pre-COVID era, how many on average ECMO patients might they care for in a year? From what I understand, they're normally funded to take up to four or five respiratory ECMO patients at a time. The cardiac ECMO patients are above and beyond that. So that's seen as a separate program. It sounds as though on average, you have probably around about 30 to 40 respiratory ECMO patients a year. Could you just describe the difference between respiratory ECMO and cardiac ECMO? Yeah, of course. So respiratory ECMO is basically designed to provide an external lung. And so the, the blood is drained from a major vein, often the femoral vein, um, and then returned to another major vein. So the oxygenation and CO2 clearance happens before the lungs with the assumption that the heart's going to be able to cope with that, that blood return. With cardiac ECMO, the purpose of the pump is essentially to partially replace the heart. 
And so the, the pump's capable of generating blood flows of about five litres per minute or thereabouts. And so it can provide pretty much complete support. And with respiratory ECMO, do you tend to do peripheral cannulation? Yes, there's a few different ways that you can configure it. The preference at Papworth was actually to do a femoral to jugular cannulation. So we'd generally plumb the drainage cannula into the right femoral vein and then the return cannula to the right internal jugular vein. Obviously, there were situations where that wasn't possible, but that was the preferred standard. Some people who haven't seen ECMO cannulas, can you just describe how big they are? Yeah. So our standard drainage cannula was a 25 French. Whenever I see them, I'm impressed. They're very big. Uh, and our typical return cannula was a 19 French. So I guess slightly bigger than your normal swan sheath. As you said, when you arrived, there were people who'd been there on ECMO for 100 days. Yeah. How do you manage the vascular access in someone who's been on ECMO for that long? Yeah, it became challenging for a number of them. One of the institutional policies was that central lines were replaced on a fairly regular basis generally by day seven to day 10 of the central lines life. So for those patients who've been on for 100 plus days, you know, we're talking about at least 10 central lines. Basically, the idea was that we had a rotation policy. So you start with the, the left internal jugular and then you move through your site. I bet you got really good at placing central lines if you're putting in that many uh, ECMO cannulas. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's right. That's a challenging skill. Okay, I want to go back now and try and put it together in the context of the timing, the chronology of the outbreaks in the UK. So you arrived there in July last year and it was just towards the end of the first wave. Yeah. So things had got quite a lot better within the hospital. There's actually quite a lot of optimism in Britain. I think there was a genuine feeling that perhaps the worst of this was over. We should be able to reopen and get back to life as normal. And then November, Boris decided to put the nation into what he termed a circuit breaker lockdown. So it was a one month lockdown. The children were still in school, but things had closed down. And our numbers were just, you know, we were just starting to watch the numbers rise. And as I'm sure you've observed in Australia as well, there's, there's a bit of a lag between when the case numbers come in and when the hospitalisation start, usually about two weeks or so. And so circuit breaker lockdown in November, December things reopened with the hope that Christmas could go ahead as normal. Um, but that was kind of when cases really started to skyrocket. You know, we're talking over 30,000 cases a day from the beginning of December. And it didn't take long for many of the district general hospitals within our catchment to become fairly overwhelmed with COVID patients. One of the strategies for the East of England network was to introduce a consultant-led transfer service with the goal of levelling the load across the region. So patients would be moved from site A that was completely overwhelmed to site B that was slightly better off at that particular time, with the idea being that eventually the load would be reasonably even across the place. But by the start of January, most places were getting pretty hammered. I can only really describe what happened at Papworth, which was Again, like I mentioned earlier, it's a slightly odd place in that there's no emergency department, but we received referrals from other hospitals that were struggling. I, I suppose to provide some context, Papworth is normally funded to around about 34, 35 ICU beds, and we've more than doubled capacity. So I think we went up to a total of 80 ICU level patients, all of whom were either ventilated or on ECMO across several different locations in the hospital. And that meant that the nursing ratios had to significantly change. So we went to a model of one ICU nurse to two or three ICU patients with bedside carers providing the day-to-day -day support. I mean, it's a huge ask of the ICU nurses and they were, they were strained. It was hard work for everybody, but I think particularly tough on the ICU nurses who are used to nursing on a one-to-one -one ratio. Suddenly, 
they're being asked to manage three bedside carers who are helping them look after three patients was hard work. Oh, absolutely. When you said they were looking after three ICU patients, would that have included ECMO patients as well? The nursing leadership team tried quite hard to make sure that the ratios were kind of one nurse to two patients for the ECMO patients. There was staff sickness complicating things as well, so I don't know that was always possible. It might also be helpful to provide some context about how the ECMO patients are cared for at Papworth. And so I think in many centres across Melbourne and Sydney, there's a two-nurse per patient ratio. Um, The standard in Papworth is actually to have one ECMO specialist looking after several ECMO patients, with each patient having their own bedside nurse. So it's a slightly different model. But of course, the ECMO specialist nurses were also becoming unwell. So the ratios there also became pretty compromised. And I can't tell you how bad they were, but uh, I think for a period, they, you know, it might have been one ECMO specialist to six patients or something like that. Oh, the strain. Wow. You talked about the nursing side of things scaling up. What else was involved? So did you have to recruit anaesthetists, other doctors, other nurses from the wards to come in? Did you recruit other areas like recovery areas to look after all these patients? Yeah, that's exactly right. So we utilised the surgical day ward, which seems like an unlikely location, but it was actually fairly well set up with um, an open ward layout, which allowed, I think we managed about 10 patients down in that area. And then we utilise the theatre recovery area, and I think that provided about another 10 ICU beds. In terms of recruiting senior medical staff, one of the most useful pools of doctors was actually the transplant physicians. So the ICU recruited a substantial number of heart and lung transplant physicians who, who helped with the intensive care consultant workload. Wow, interesting. And that's not a huge workforce in Australia and New Zealand. No, I'm trying to think how many how many there would be. I can only think of the one transplant centre here in Melbourne and I can't imagine it. It would have a big team of transplant physicians supporting it. I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I think in terms of um, injecting consultant staff into the response, it, it did end up being around about another 10 or 12 doctors to help. So yeah, every bit counts, right? Absolutely. Gosh, yes. Do you recruit anaesthetists into the ICU? The way that British healthcare is set up is that ICU and anaesthesia are a little bit more closely linked. So many anaesthetists will have a component of their work that is in the intensive care. And so anyone who had a background of doing ICU was recruited back into the intensive care. But we we tried to protect the anaesthetists as well because those who were solely doing anaesthesia were also providing important services for the number of acutes that were still coming through. Did you have to recruit nurses from non-ICU parts of the hospital? Yeah, and actually the ODP workforce. What's an ODP? They're operating department practitioners and they tend to function in theatre like an anaesthetic nurse would in Australia or an anaesthetic technician in New Zealand. And a number of ODPs were seconded to ICU to provide bedside carer roles and a number of nurses from around the hospital recruited into those bedside carer roles. Wow. Huge pulling of resources from everywhere by the sound of it. And I can imagine that still, as you said, the cardiac surgical service still needs to function. There's still people having heart attacks and needing catheterization. Do you know if those services were impacted much at all? Yes, significantly scaled back. So the thoracic workload continued throughout, but that's just one operating theatre. They were running one cardiac theatre through most of it, and that was just for the highest priority cases. Wow. So say you're going into the COVID ward uh, of the COVID ICU, what sort of PPE were you wearing? So we had fairly standard N95 mask. 
The advice was to wear a, a full-face visor. Many staff chose to wear goggles or other glasses form of eye protection rather than the full-face visor. Um, and then a standard water-resistant gown. Within the NHS, there's a bear below the elbows policy. And so most staff were encouraged actually not to wear gloves unless they were touching patients um, and just to be very stringent with their hand hygiene. One of our biggest concerns is healthcare worker infections. Hmm. What was that like? I'm just speaking through anecdote. I know of at least three consultants who became unwell with COVID, a number of ICU nurse workforce. I can't give you numbers, I'm sorry, Susie. No, 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 that's okay. You know, it's a challenge, isn't it? And I think one of the other things that people, particularly those with young children, have been concerned about is bringing the infection home. So did you take any precautions? Yeah, my um, typical strategy once arriving home was simply to go straight to the shower and uh, get clean. We, as a family, we were pretty careful about maintaining social distancing. We did limit what we did to truly essential things. I don't think through January we actually visited a uh, supermarket. It was all click and collect or delivery. I know a few people here have um, got separate scrubs that they wear to and from work rather than bringing their normal clothes to work. Did you do anything like that? No, I didn't actually. I did think about it, but I I wasn't organised enough. Last year, we Mm. actually had some scrubs with the ASA logo made up. So maybe I should promote that for people who are in the same boat as you, because we've we've done all the organising and it make it easier for people. Just a little bit more about what happened in January. One of the things that I haven't mentioned yet was the workload associated with the ECMO referrals. It became a full-time job. So one consultant was designated simply to look after the referrals through pretty much all of January for about 16 hours a day across two shifts. I tally this up, but in January alone, we had about 350 ECMO referrals. Wow. More referrals in one month than you would have had for the whole year pre-COVID. Yeah, yeah. In terms of patient selection, that was a particularly challenging aspect of the job. And for somebody who was junior in that role, like me, it it could be difficult to get the attention of somebody more senior for an opinion as to what they thought, just because we were all working so hard. To put that into context, at the peak of the second wave, we maxed out with 26 patients on respiratory ECMO at one time, 25 of whom had COVID. But in terms of the ratio of referrals to patients we accepted, we had to say no to a lot of people, Mm. which of course carries its own difficulties. One of the hugest risk factors for moral injury. Yeah, well, that's right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Gosh, difficult. And I think I can imagine quite difficult having to make those decisions when you're relatively junior, as you yeah. said. Before. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I must say that despite it being challenging, I, I did feel supported by the senior staff there. And I think particularly around that decision making, they were really good at making sure that as much as they possibly could, those decisions were supported. Oh, good, yeah. good. There has been a a paper that came out, I think it was in March this year, that that surveyed doctors and nurses working in intensive care units in the UK by Neil Greenberg. I don't know if you've seen it. There is a higher rate. Up to 40% of particularly nursing staff were showing symptoms of PTSD. Yeah, that statistic doesn't surprise me just from what I've seen anecdotally. And as it became apparent that there was going to be at least some kind of third wave within the NHS, Uh, There were a number of very senior, very skilled ICU nursing staff at the hospital who decided to to resign. Oh, understandable. It is unfortunately just there's only so much somebody can take, right? It put an enormous emotional strain on particularly the ICU nursing staff. Absolutely. They're so highly trained and they really want to deliver the best care. And then when they're being forced 
in these situations where they're compromising the care that they want to give, I think that's a huge emotional burden for them. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Oh, that's very sad to hear, but understandable. With that, how much really of a reprieve was there given that ECMO patients can stay on ECMO for such a long time? I mean, with the ECMO group, they were such a challenging group. In terms of a standard ECMO run for a COVID patient, it became apparent that under two months was a relatively short period of time for them. Wow. I mean, it seems kind of odd, but uh, you know, a number of the patients who were being looked after at PAP were suddenly turned around at day 80 or something like that. And in fact, our longest run, I think, came off on day 150 or something, but had virtually no lung volumes until about a week before he came off. So suddenly at day 140 or something, his lungs finally started to recover. Wow, that's incredible. That's a really good point there. Let's compare the COVID ECMO patient to a non-COVID patient. Well, let's compare it to trauma who was in there. Like, how did they fare? I mean, severe pulmonary contusions on for about a week. And that's the natural history of pulmonary contusions, isn't it? They get worse over a couple of days and then they get better over a few more days and then you're good. Yeah, that's right. They get better. We did look after a few asthmatic patients and a few patients with aspiration pneumonias that are typically beyond for about a week and they'd get better. The asthmatics, even just a few days, and then they'd get better. That COVID group, they did not behave. So I can imagine that's also a fairly steep learning curve for those who've managed a lot of patients on respiratory ECMO for other conditions. Yeah. To suddenly be faced with these patients that are on for 50, 100, 150 days, you must be scratching your head throughout that time wondering how long do you keep going? Yeah, well, that's, that's right. One of the things that we observe just in terms of the clinical bedside observations of the patients is that desedation was ridiculously hard. As soon as they had some respiratory drive, they were so dyspneic with no movable lung. So they were just straining and abdominal straining is bad for ECMO because it severely compromises the flows that can be achieved. And so we were in the spiral of having to repeatedly give neuromuscular blockade and deepen the sedation for these patients simply because their respiratory drive was too great and they had no lungs to fill. Gosh. Was one of the criteria for ECMO age of patients? Are we talking about mainly young people here? The NHS has got commissioning criteria for their respiratory ECMO patients. And these became almost like the letter of the law for the COVID outbreak. The key criteria were the risk score, which is a kind of a severity of illness or likelihood of ECMO survival score, um, had to be over three. And one of the components of that risk score is patient age. And so by the nature of that scoring system, uh, a lot of patients over the age of 50 were excluded. And at least anecdotally, the over 50-year-old patient group, because the runs were so long, did not do particularly well. Jeez. Mm, yeah. Oh, difficult. Between the second and the third wave, mm. what was it like? Did you, as a unit, get a chance to have a bit of a reprieve? Yeah, I think for the consultant staff, it was quite good in a way. So for me, I mean, through January, February, March, my job, despite on paper being 50-50 ICU anesthesia, was full-time ICU for obvious reasons. As the ICU workload started to, to drop, there was significant pressure to, to get to work on the enormous backlog of surgical patients. So as soon as we started to see the numbers declining, there was major pressure to upscale the theatre work to cope with that backlog. The ICU nurses didn't have a significant reprieve, I don't think. I think for the consultant staff, it was better. I mean, my job became more varied and more interesting again. Mm, so not much of a break at all. 
And also, I suppose, if you're ramping up elective cardiac surgery during that time, then those patients go to ICU afterwards. Yeah, that's right. Again, I'm speculating here, but there's the potential for those cardiac surgical patients who have waited longer to be sicker and therefore to have longer, more intensive ICU stays. Mm, Good point. Oh, heavy, heavy things to deal with all around. So you left, you've been back about a month now. So where are we? We're in September. And I think there was Freedom Day. When was Freedom Day exactly? Oh, it was Monday, the week before we left. It was the 19th of July. The third wave was well and truly underway by Freedom Day. And in fact, there were a number of notable events around that time. So in my last two weeks of work, there was a significant increase in my workload again and the referrals coming through. And I think on several of my final shifts was fielding five or six referrals a day. And I think I went out maybe three more times in a two-week period just picking up COVID patients. Goodness. Meanwhile, the, the rhetoric in the media is that we're all going to be free now. So I guess that paradox was fueling a, a reasonable amount of angst within the health system. One of my last days of work, we again had to go back into cohorting the COVID patients. You know, we'd reached critical mass. A section of the unit was closed specifically for COVID again. And I think the line in the sand, that was kind of the moment for the staff where it felt like, yeah, the third wave's here. I can almost feel the sinking feeling that comes with that realisation. I can also imagine that your last few days at work, you're taking on this incredible number of referrals then you jump on a plane yeah. and you're back to a country with COVID zero as if it never happened. Yeah. So that's a huge jump in so many ways. Yeah, I, I think as a family, we weren't quite prepared for the culture shock, if that makes sense. I mean, it was actually, it was almost stressful seeing people without masks everywhere. Reverse culture shock is a thing. It's been described a lot. Yeah. You know, one of the things that was really interesting in Cambridge, at least, was that it was announced that it was Freedom Day. Meanwhile, there were a lot of sensible businesses that were still mandating mask wearing and a lot of sensible people who were still continuing to wear masks out and about. Gosh, I feel like that's been very eye-opening to hear about all your experiences over there. One of the most remarkable features of this disease is its ability to overwhelm healthcare systems. It's a terrible illness for people, but um, its ability to, to just completely overwhelm and, and close down the health system is quite amazing. Mm, Very sobering. If there was one thing that you could say, either to your colleagues or to the general public who might be listening, what would you like to say? Well, I guess the the first thing to the general public is the the restrictions suck, but they work. If you do socially distance, if you do wear a mask, your chances of getting the illness are dramatically reduced. And one further, in that final two weeks when I was working, the vast majority of people we were seeing were unvaccinated either by choice or because it hadn't been offered to them yet. So if you get the opportunity, take the vaccine for sure. The consequences of this illness are so much worse. Um, And into the healthcare workers, be kind to the ICU nurses because they, during that time, they're your single greatest asset. There was all this rhetoric about ventilators and the importance of having ventilators, but a ventilator is nothing without an ICU nurse next to it. So yes, look after the ICU nurses. Absolutely. They're highly, highly skilled people and we can't replace them easily. No. Oh, my goodness. Well, look, I thank you very much for your time today. I really hope that you are looking after yourself. You've just been through a very, you know, incredible experience in your life. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure at times overwhelming. It would overwhelm anybody. So I wish you, I sincerely wish you a really smooth transition back into COVID 
zero nearish New Zealand. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Susie. You know, I really hope that Australia and New Zealand can continue to keep things relatively under wraps for our people, but also for our health systems. So how sobering was that conversation? I am indebted to Ryan for sharing with me those experiences, particularly when they were so fresh to him. I want to put in perspective some of the numbers that he gave us. So he said, in typical pre-COVID times, they would normally have four or five respiratory ECMO patients in their unit at a time. And at the peak during the pandemic, they had 25 patients, so five times their usual workload. Now, it doesn't sound like a lot of upscaling, but it must be incredibly hard to scale up ECMO. You can't just manufacture ECMO pumps, specialist nurses to look after these patients. They also went up to an ICU with 80 beds. That's a huge ICU. Not only was there a busy workload, but there was also a huge increase in the number of referrals. So during a typical year, they might get 35 referrals. But during January, during the peak, they had 350, that's 10 times the number of referrals in one month than they would normally get for the whole year. It also means that there were probably a lot of people who were referred who missed out on an ICU ECMO bed. That's completely sobering. I just want to completely change track now. Now, one of the things that Ryan and I talked about was wearing scrubs to and from work. And I know a lot of people, myself included, are doing that so that we have a separate set of clothes that go into the workplace and doesn't come into the home environment. It also makes it incredibly easy to decide what to wear to work each day. So if that is something that appeals to you and you just haven't gotten around to organising it, then feel free to have a look at the link I'm going to post in the show notes. We've done a little bit of scoping and we found a company that is selling scrubs. We're certainly not getting any financial reward from this. We're not getting any kickbacks and it's completely up to you whether you take up this offer. But if you want to get some scrubs, you can go to this site. They have a whole selection that you can choose from, all different styles, sizes, colours, etc. That's up to you. They also offer embroidering, so you can get the ASA logo embroidered on it or your name or both. And if you do decide that you want the ASA logo embroidered on your scrubs, then the ASA will pay for that for the first 50 people to take up this offer. It's just a small gesture to show that we thank you for your support and we value you staying safe out there. This podcast was produced by the Australian Society of Anesthetists. More podcasts can be found on the ASA website, asa.org.au. Music was La Toile Dance by Maidan, which can be found on the Free Music Archive website. We hope you enjoyed listening. <laughs>